In the lay literature and in all the books you read, ketones are touted as some sort of miraculous fuel, that they are clean burning fuel. They are what our muscles want most of all. It's what our brain wants most of all for maximal performance. Unfortunately, that's absolutely not true. Hi friends, I'm super excited for today's episode. We're going to be talking all about mitochondrial uncoupling and specifically, I know that sounds incredibly technical, but don't worry, we're going to break it down for you in today's episode. Specifically, we're going to be sharing how you can eat certain foods that are going to turbocharge your metabolism. And you're going to learn all about what this concept of mitochondrial uncoupling is. And essentially, it's a way of effectively wasting calories. So think of yourself as being the Ferrari rather than the Toyota Prius. Who wouldn't want to be the Ferrari, right? Uh, it's going to allow you much more flexibility with what you're eating and enable you to support your energy, your vitality, but also fat loss at the same time. And it's it's the wonderful reason that the keto diet works, uh, is really down to mitochondrial uncoupling, but it isn't necessary to go on the keto diet to achieve those results. And my guest today Dr. Stephen Gundry, who is the author of his brand new book, Unlocking the Keto Code, is going to be sharing exactly how you can do this. Dr. Gundry has worked in medicine for over 40 years. He was a cardiothoracic surgeon and heart surgeon, but today he focuses on teaching people how to avoid surgery by using his unique vision of human nutrition. He's the director and founder of the International Heart and Lung Institute, as well as the Center for Restorative Medicine in Palm Springs and Santa Barbara. He still sees patients every single day as he shares on the show. So he's right in the front line. Uh, and he's also an incredible researcher and scientist at heart as well. And so without further delay, let me introduce you now to Dr. Stephen Gundry. So, Dr. Gundry, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. I've been really, really looking forward to recording this episode together. Um, I love your new book, Unlocking the Keto Code. It shares so much, so much exciting stuff, actually. And what's partly exciting to me was the list of foods you give that I love that actually can enhance longevity and health. So, first of all, a very warm welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. And I'm glad to be back in the UK, at least virtually. Uh, I uh, feel like part of it is my home because I did live in London for a year part, as part of my training. So, and it's always great to hear a proper pronunciation of the English language. <laughs> Hopefully I'm doing that. <laughs> well, it's great to have you here, as I say. Um, so let's start off with ketones. I think that's the best place to start and just explaining for people what are ketones and why are they important? And also, why did we get so excited about them in the first place? Well, you know, the, the ketogenic diet, I think most people have heard of the ketogenic diet. Uh, I think most people uh, are mistaken in what they think a ketogenic diet is going to do for them. The ketogenic diet is not new. Uh, it's been around since 1930. In fact, the term ketogenic diet was coined in 1930 at the Mayo Clinic in the United States. Uh, at that time, there was no treatment for seizure disorders, uh, particularly childhood seizure disorders. There were no drugs at that time. And it was noted that uh, children would have such incessant seizures that they could go days almost in a, in a coma without eating. And oddly, the, the longer they went without eating, they would awake and be absolutely normal and seizure-free until their parents uh, understandably gave them something to eat. And after they ate, they'd start having seizures again. So um, some professors at Harvard said, you know, normally when you're starving, you produce these uh, short chain fats called ketone bodies in your liver. And those ketone bodies uh, are generated to actually go to the brain and provide an alternative fuel source for the brain if you're starving to death and there's no sugar in your system. And so they said, gee, 
I wonder if these ketones, these kids were starving after their seizures. I wonder if these ketones were somehow keeping their brain from having seizures. Well, the only other way that was known about to produce ketones was to have a very high fat diet, 80% fat, 10% carbohydrate, and 10% protein. Why don't we try to have kids eat an 80% fat diet and see what happens? And remarkably, kids did extremely well. Over 50% of them had marked seizure reduction. And it was actually the standard of care for childhood seizure until um, meds like dilantin and phenobarbital came along. And, and then that diet kind of died for obvious reasons. Um, anyone who has children uh, or now grandchildren knows it's nearly impossible to get kids not to eat carbohydrates. And as I can assure you in my practice, it's virtually impossible to get adults to avoid carbohydrates for any length of time. So um, in the 1990s, um, these seizure meds have side effects. They tend to dull the brain. And so the, the ketogenic diet for kids had a resurgence only in the 1990s. Instead of a high-fat diet, um, they started giving children medium-chain triglycerides, uh, MCT oil. And the beauty of MCT, medium chain triglycerides, is that it's unlike any other fat. Um, MCTs are absorbed directly from our intestines, believe it or not, fats aren't. And they're taken directly to the liver. And then in the liver, they're converted into ketones. So you could give kids a much lower amount of fat in the form of MCT oil and give them a whole lot more carbohydrates and a whole lot more protein, and they'd still make ketones from the MCT. And so that actually became fairly popular, and it was actually the basis in all my books uh, and my program in a ketogenic diet of getting people to use MCT oil as a way of producing ketone body. So that's kind of ketones in a nutshell. Now, in the lay literature and in all the books you read, ketones are touted as some sort of miraculous fuel, that they are clean burning fuel. They are what our muscles want most of all. It's what our brain wants most of all for maximal performance. Unfortunately, that's absolutely not true. Um, really good work in humans at Harvard and at the NIH, where I was an associate for a number of years, has shown that even at full ketosis, where you're pumping ketones out, only 30% of our fuel needs in our muscles are met by a ketogenic diet, 70% has to come from glucose or what are called free fatty acids. And even at full ketosis, the brain, which likes ketones, it still wants 30 to 40% of its fuel as glucose, not ketones. So the idea that this is a performance enhancing product is, is absolutely not true. Yet, people lose weight on a ketogenic diet, people feel better on a ketogenic diet. So if it's not this perfect fuel, what the heck are ketones doing? And that's what intrigued me. And that's actually what started my research in unlocking the keto code. And it turns out that ketones are not some super fuel, but ketones are a signaling compound. And they're signaling the energy producing organelles, the mitochondria, to protect themselves at all costs. And in the book, uh, I use an example of the mito club. Um, mitochondria 
are, believe it or not, engulfed bacteria from two billion years ago, and we won't go in that today, but our mitochondria make energy, ATP, by basically combining oxygen that we breathe and protons uh, from the food we eat, uh, coupling that oxygen and a proton together and creating adenosine triphosphate. And I use the word coupling because that's what happens in the electron transport chain in mitochondria. We couple oxygen with protons and almost like a thermonuclear reaction. And in the end, we make ATP. This coupling is actually very hard work. It's incredibly damaging to mitochondria themselves. And people have heard about this damage. People have heard of reactive oxygen species, free radicals. These are consequences of that thermonuclear reaction of coupling. So it was proposed that there has to be a mechanism for mitochondria to protect themselves from all this damage. And an example I like to use is a pressure cooker. Uh, pressure cookers are great for pressure cooking food quickly. Uh, they're great for destroying lectins, one of my favorite subjects. Uh, but if that pressure gets too high, the pressure cooker can explode. Uh, my mother exploded one when I was young. So uh, <laughs> it's very exciting. Uh, so the pressure cooker has a pop-off valve on the top. And when the pressure gets too high, that pop-off valve hopefully releases the pressure. And it turns out that mitochondria have these pressure release valves to pop off excess pressure. And they're controlled by literally emergency exits on the lining of our mitochondria. And they're controlled by uncoupling proteins. And the word uncoupling, uh, I've spent six months trying to figure out a better way to explain uncoupling, uh, but- Everyone thinks about conscious uncoupling. <laughs> this is true. Uh, everybody thinks about my, my friend Gwyneth Paltrow and her mm -hmm. former husband. But what happens is that uh, we uncouple protons joining with oxygen so that they literally don't make energy. And these protons escape through these trap doors. Now, what's fascinating when you look into uncoupling, and it's been known about for a very long time, at rest, you and me sitting here, 30% of all the food that we eat that goes into our mitochondria for making ATP is uncoupled and is wasted. It's thrown out these trapdoors, these side exits, and does not get involved in making energy. Now, at first glance, you say, boy, that's really stupid. You mean I have to eat 30% more calories that I'm going to waste just to make ATP? Well, it turns out that one of the effects of uncoupling is the generation of heat and we're a warm-blooded animal. And so many of us believe that fundamentally, we uncouple a lot of the food we eat to generate heat. And even cold-blooded animals are not cold-blooded. They actually have to maintain the body temperature, but much more ambient. So we think that that's uh, one of the ways that we generate heat. So that, can I just clarify that? So that excess... Yeah that's lost, that 30% is actually keeping us warm, effectively. Correct. That's generating that's correct. heat. That's correct. Okay, so if we get cold, are we going to improve this? Well, it turns out, uh, for instance, as I talk about in the book, I'm having, I'm having a cup of tea right now. Now, it really wouldn't matter whether this was iced tea or hot tea. Uh, this tea actually has uncoupling uh, compounds in it. And anyone who's had even a nice coffee notices that they 
tend to get warm from having that. And even some people notice that they may even start to glisten. Uh, men sweat, women glisten, and they feel <laughs> they feel they feel a little damp. And it's actually because these compounds, as we'll get to in a minute, are uh, mitochondrial uncouplers. I'm going to briefly interrupt today's show to tell you about how you can master your metabolism. If you have fat loss goals, if you've got muscle gaining goals, if you just want to master your glucose tolerance and improve things like your insulin sensitivity and your longevity, then check out the Female Biohacker Collective, my exclusive membership, because this month it is all about mastering your metabolism. Maybe you've even bought devices like a CGM or a Lumen device and you're not really clear on how to use them. Well, we're going to be unlocking those things and a whole lot more with our live masterclass Q&A core and also our one week live challenge where we help you create your own transformation. You can find all of the details over at angelafoster.me forward slash FBC. That's angelafoster.me forward slash FBC or follow the link in the show notes below this podcast. Your readers have probably heard of thermogenic compounds uh, that uh, are somehow making heat. Well, it's not somehow making heat. We now know that all of these compounds, uh, which are thermogenic compounds, work by uncoupling mitochondria. Okay, so that's where uncoupling comes from. Now, why would ketones uncouple mitochondria? And that's one of the big conundrums. Um, If you think about it, Uh, we would normally make ketones if we were starving. And we would do that because uh, we can, all of our cells in our body can use uh, what are called free fatty acids from our fat to generate ATP. Except free fatty acids are too big to cross the blood-brain barrier and get into our brain. So there's a problem with everything else in us can burn free fatty acids and stay alive, but the brain can't get to them. So free fatty acids can go to the liver and the liver converts them into ketones, which are very small fatty acids that can get through the blood-brain barrier and be used as a fuel. And that explains why, if you're starving, you would make ketones just basically to keep your brain alive. Not perfect, but alive. Yes, so can I clarify that? So when you're saying it's not perfect, earlier you were saying the brain will still want 30% glucose. Correct. So I have a a question, but maybe we'll come to that in a moment about what happens. Well, go ahead. Why not now? So because what what I'm curious about is when when I read originally or you hear other experts talking about the fact that you can teach your brain to run on ketones and you're going to have, as you were saying, this clean burning energy and in a fasted state, you're going to have ultra concentration. Hasn't really been my experience. Um, But what I was curious about is if the brain then is still demanding of glucose, aren't we going to end up effectively raising cortisol and possibly adrenaline so we can get more glucose to the brain? No, the the great thing is that when we break free fatty acids off of triglycerides, the triglycerol backbone actually is converted into glucose. So we have a we have a ready supply of glucose in our fat, believe it or not. In fact, you know, most people, I hope, realize that we store sugar as fat. We have very limited sugar stores in from in the form of glycogen, but we take most of our sugar and converted into fat. And that's one of the problems um, of people in, in the West in that insulin, which you and I were talking about off camera, uh, insulin is the fat storage hormone that instructs our enzyme system to convert sugar into fat and to usher fat into fat cells. On the other hand, uh, insulin, because its job is to convert sugar into fat, blocks fat 
free fatty acids from being released from fat cells and actually blocks what's called hormone-sensitive lipase. Hormone-sensitive lipase allows fat to exit fat cells, but an elevated insulin level blocks that effect. And one of the sad things that people who are trying to lose weight don't know is that if they have an elevated insulin level, and the vast majority of people do, that they can try a ketogenic diet and they'll fall flat on their faces because they literally can't get free fatty acids to be released from fat cell. Because and they have insulin resistance. Because they have insulin resistance. And so and what about a, in like an athletic population? Because I know, for example, when I was talking to like a female athletic population, mm -hmm. so when I was discussing with Stacey Sims, her research shows that because the female body is much more sensitive, actually, like particularly with exercise, if you don't refuel post-workout as a woman, that's when you can get problems with cortisol raising and then it's kind of breaking down that muscle tissue as opposed to just burning those um, free fatty acids. What are your thoughts there? Well, interestingly enough, um, yeah, exercise, if you're, if you're an elite athlete, um, almost all of the studies on a ketogenic diet show that you can compete as an elite athlete on a ketogenic diet, but surprisingly, you actually have to increase your oxygen consumption uh, more than if you were eating a carbohydrate or protein-based diet. So yes, you can you know, have good athletic performance, but particularly with race walkers who've been studied extensively, you actually they have to have more oxygen consumption to reach the same level of athletic performance. And if you think about it, uh, that's the last thing you want to do as an athlete is to you know increase your aerobic capacity to breathe faster and longer. And so it, yeah, you can do it, but it, it doesn't pay off. Um, on the other hand, if you look at a, a bear, uh, a bear uh, during hibernation uh, lives on its fat stores. It turns out that uh, a bear doesn't urinate for five months because uh, it doesn't drink. Yeah, it doesn't, wow. it doesn't urinate. Yeah. For five months. For five months. Wow. Now, why doesn't it urinate? Well, we actually only urinate for two reasons. Number one is to get rid of water and to get rid of protein waste byproducts. The bear does not break down their muscle mass. They live on free fatty acids and ketones uh, and do perfectly fine with that. They, if they broke down their muscle, then you know when they came out from the den, they couldn't hunt. So bears emerge from the den really skinny, but all their muscle mass is intact. And so I, I don't worry in a ketogenic diet where about losing muscle mass. I really don't. It's it's not a problem if you design it correctly. But you're right. You don't want to design a diet that would force you into using protein to generate uh, glucose. Yeah, yeah, for sure, because it's going to be quite catabolic. Okay. Right. Um, interesting. So going back then to this mitochondrial uncoupling, right, which is exciting because for people who, especially we're recording this just before Christmas, so it will come out in the new oh, year. Right. People, <laughs> it's perfect timing, Dr. Gundry, where I think most of us will be thinking that we might have a little bit extra to lose. Um, this seems like a very efficient way to take on board a few more calories uh, and instigate this process potentially, or at least if you have been taking on more calories to now lose that excess body fat. Um, when we're looking at the uh, uncoupling of mitochondria, what, what's happening there? Like, is this causing any damage? Like, we want to keep our mitochondria healthy. What is the best way to do that? Believe it or not, the best way to keep your mitochondrial healthy is to uncouple them. Okay. Um, there's, a, there's an interesting little paper that I uh, suggest everybody read. Uh, it was written in the year 2000 by a PhD by the name of Martin Brand, and it's got a simple title, Uncoupling to Survive. And 
it again, it's the exact 180 degree twist on what you would think. So if you think about it, if you're starving to death, you would want your mitochondria, which make energy, to become incredibly efficient. You would want your mitochondria to be a, a Toyota Prius where you could get, you know, 70 miles per gallon or 70, you know, kilometers per gallon uh, and really eke out every last drop out of gasoline. Now, that makes sense because there's not much to go around. What the observation is, is the exact opposite happens that your mitochondria actively waste energy, the exact opposite of what you would expect. And so he proposed that if you're starving to death or you're getting a signal that you're starving to death, then you should protect your mitochondria from damage at all costs because in the end, your mitochondria are what keeps you alive. And who cares about your muscles? Who cares about your hair? Who cares about your skin? Protect the mitochondria. So we know now that mitochondria pop off their pressure valve to stop the damage that can occur in making energy. The other thing that's equally important, and I use an example of a dog sled. Let's suppose uh, I've got one dog pulling my dog sled up in the Arctic. Well, the dog can pull the sled. Uh, we're not gonna go very fast and we're not gonna go very far before the dog gets tired out. What if we took five more dogs and made a six team dog sled? Well, each dog now has to do a sixth of the work and we're gonna go a lot farther and we're gonna go a lot faster. The only downside is we now have to feed six dogs instead of one dog. So they're going to need more fuel. This is exactly what happens with ketone signaling. We reduce the work of each mitochondria, but because mitochondria have their own DNA, they can divide and make more mitochondria within a cell without the cell dividing. So we can instantly with the right signal, make six mitochondria instead of one. Now, some cells have thousands of mitochondria, believe it or not, not like the little thing from high school where we saw one mitochondria per cell. So what we now know is rather than becoming a Toyota Prius, our mitochondria with these signals become a Ferrari, which burns a lot of fuel but is a high performance machine. And what he went on to show is if you look at super old people, late 90s, early 100s, who are thriving, they have the most uncoupled mitochondria of anybody. Hmm. And then you start looking at some of the blue zones, uh, and it's Turns out that the food that these blue zones eat are foods that hopefully we'll talk about are really good at uncoupling mitochondria. And the more you uncouple your mitochondria to a point, uh, the longer you live and the healthier you are. Interesting. Wow. Interesting. And can I give you one more example that our listeners yeah, will love? Okay. And I talk about this in the book. There's a theory of aging um, called the cost of living hypothesis. And it's, it's quite a nice theory. And that says the, the higher your metabolic rate, uh, the shorter your lifespan. And the slower your metabolic rate, in general, the longer your lifespan. And that makes sense. Uh, little small animals have a very fast metabolic rate and they don't live very long. Big animals like us or elephants have, in general, a slower metabolic rate, and they live much longer. Okay, that makes sense, except birds don't follow this pattern. Birds, in general, well, are dogs, small. dogs, right? Small dogs tend to live longer than big dogs. That's correct. Small dogs actually live 
twice as long as big dog. Uh, it turns out that a hummingbird has one of the highest metabolic rates ever recorded. Hummingbird's hearts beat at 1,100 beats per minute. A hummingbird in captivity can live 12 years, exactly like you know our a big dog. Uh, a parrot can live 80 to 100 years. And it's because birds have incredibly uncoupled mitochondria. And as I talk about in the book, it's from the things that birds eat that uh, uncouple their mitochondria. And it's the nectar that has vitamin A retinoic acid that uncouples hummingbird mitochondria. Fun fact. Interesting. I know you mentioned actually when we're talking about that, I want to come on to the foods in just a moment, but you mentioned your, your friend, Dr. David Sinclair. Um, yeah. so I'm a big fan of his work. And he, um, from what I understand, believes, and I think in fact, the World Health Organization may even have recategorized aging as a disease. Do you think it is possible that we could reach a stage where we don't die from, from, from getting older? Like it just almost seems unfathomable, right? Because we associate that we're just aging all the time. And eventually, depending on how quickly we're aging and whether we succumb to various chronic diseases often more than anything else, we don't. I'm curious as to your view on it. Well, he, uh, yeah, he and I have become friends through the years, and we agree on a great many things. Um, he would like to categorize, you know, aging as a disease because uh, if we can't convince our governments uh, that aging is a disease, they won't pay for the treatment of aging. Um, <laughs> but as I've written about the longevity paradox, and I'm writing my next book right currently, if you look at at animal models, particularly worm models, uh, aging actually only occurs as a breakdown of the interface between the wall of our gut and the microbiome, the bacterial community that lives in our gut. And as long as that wall is intact, and it's very hard to keep that wall intact. And I've written most of my books trying to teach people how to keep that wall intact. As long as that wall is intact, and as long as substances are not getting through that wall, which I think are the causes of aging, then you will not age. Um, and we have worm models that show that it's the breakdown of that wall piece by piece and bacterial particles and other food particles coming across that wall that actually causes what we call aging. Um, Hippocrates 2,500 years ago said all disease begins in the gut. Mm. And he was right. Uh, he didn't have the sophisticated tests that I have uh, or that others have to literally look at the breakdown of the wall of the gut. And he didn't know, uh, maybe he did, that you can stop that process and repair that process and allow people to you know, reverse whatever chronic disease they have. I got interested in this with heart disease, but now 80% of my practice is autoimmune diseases, um, which is caused, I can guarantee you, by leaky gut. And when we repair leaky gut, the autoimmune disease resolves. Always, 94% of my patients in a year have resolved their autoimmune disease without medication. Mm. Not bad, not bad. Pretty amazing. I mean, yeah, leaky gut. I suppose we, we're gonna divert, uh, divert a little bit, but we'll come back to mitochondria then, because I think this is very interesting for people. Because one of the, the biggest things around leaky gut, um, and whether you should or shouldn't eat it. And there seem to be two camps. You know, I was reading just today, Zoe, um, the healthcare company that uh, Dr. Um, Dr. Will Bolschwitz is, is kind of medical director of in the US and uh, here in the UK, we have another one um, whose name is escaping me right now. Um, but um, when we look at that, for example, they were publishing an article around, is gluten really bad for everyone? And it is in gluten sensitive people and it is with people obviously with celiac disease, but is it the case that not everyone, and that seems to be something that no one's ever fully agreed on. 
um, you know, it, do we have to exclude all gluten to maintain the integrity of our gut lining? Uh, I think that's... Uh, it depends. That's who I was thinking of, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah that's yeah. Spectrum. Uh, and I've had him on my podcast, and I, I like his books a lot. Um, and I like what he's doing with Zoe. But uh, gluten is is a really good way of breaking uh, down the wall of the gut in tight junctions. I can tell you that 99.5% of my patients with measurable leaky gut have antibodies to the various forms of gluten, to wheat germ gluten, and to non-gluten proteins. What's fascinating to me is that uh, after a year, when people have sealed their gut, uh, all of these people lose their antibodies to gluten. They no longer recognize gluten as, as a foreign protein. Now, does that mean we can reintroduce gluten to those people? I think the answer is it depends on where you live. Um, for instance, in Indonesia, seitan is, is literally pure wheat gluten, and it's a major portion of the diet. And these people don't, in general, have leaky gut. Tons of my patients with an autoimmune disease that resolves will go, let's say, to Italy or the south of France, and they'll have pasta, and they'll have pizza, and they'll have bread. And they won't flare. They won't get a, you know, an upset stomach. They won't get IBS. They won't, their psoriasis won't come back. Their Hashimoto's markers don't come back. And they, they go, oh, wow, uh, Dr. Gundry scared me. I'm going to come back to the United States and I'm now going to eat all these things. And within a couple of weeks, coming back and eating our bread, our pizzas, whatever, they flare. And they go, well, what the heck? You know, I thought I was cured. Well, one of the things that we've unfortunately exported is Roundup, glyphosate. And almost all of our foods in the United States are tainted with Roundup. All of our wheat, all of our oats, all of our rye, all of our canola is tainted with uh, Roundup. Even a lot of our wines are tainted with Roundup. On the other hand, in the EU, uh, certain countries now have banned Roundup, and it's much less prevalent. And sadly, Roundup uh, can potentiate leaky gut all by itself. Roundup can make people who are not gluten sensitive sensitive to gluten. And Roundup can actually kill off the bacterial species that actually, if you will, enjoy eating gluten. So it's, it's, you know, it's rendered our defense systems down. So that's a long way of saying is it, it depends. It depends on your microbiome, your defense fortifications. It depends on whether your immune system has been activated to look for gluten and whether it's been whether you can turn it off. And I think that's why you see such variation in literature. And a lot of times it's, well, where was this study done? That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for clearing that up. Um, let's talk then, because actually on the Mediterranean diet and uh, they eat a lot of the foods that you talk about as uh, enhancing these uncoupling effects. So I was looking in the list. I haven't actually drunk in six months, but I used to enjoy red wine. I saw you'd put that on the list as as a as a as a positive. Uh, ghost cheese I have here, like five naturally fibrous foods, turmeric, MCT oil, um, and uh, and tea and coffee, as you'd already mentioned, actually alongside turmeric. So all of these things, if we're eating them, I think also. Dark chocolate was one you heard about, which I yeah, love 90% dark chocolate. Yeah, so I was, I was pleased to see that. So I think there's quite a few of these, actually, that I'm incorporating alongside fermented foods and things like that. Um, what should, how, how can we enhance this then? Is this also going to simultaneously, presumably, increase our metabolic rate? Yeah, in fact, um, I, um, 
a student of history and I've been fascinated with the spice trade of the Middle Ages, among other things. And the spice trade, uh, as most Europeans know, was people would, in the spice trade, 50% uh, of people died in the spice trade, uh, trying to bring spices back from the spice islands from India and uh, died in, in transporting them, particularly in ships. And yet people risk their lives to do that. Now, quite frankly, and people spent exorbitant amounts of money for spices, for black pepper, for cinnamon. Now, the only reason people risk their lives that much, and the only reason people spend that much money is for drugs. And the spice trade was actually the drug trade of the Middle Ages. Now, they weren't drugs like we think, but they were actually very impressive mitochondrial couplers. And one of the things I write about in the book, who would have imagined that of the three gifts of the Magi, for the th three wise men, for the little baby Jesus, two of the three gifts were mitochondrial couplers, frankincense and myrrh. And the third one was gold. That, that, that made sense. But these things were so prized that these two plant compounds, frankincense and myrrh, were the gifts. And you go, well, why in the world would you give some kids some plant gum? And it's because they were known for their health benefits. They didn't know why they were healthy. We know that black pepper is one of the best mitochondrial couplers there is. Cinnamon, uh, cloves. Turns out cloves have the strongest uncoupling effect of any spice. Interesting. Yeah. It's funny when I when you talk about this because uh, and when we look at longevity and we look at people who've lived the longest, it's quite interesting because I it almost feels like I mean it depends on how long you want to live, right? But uh, you don't have to get everything right because I I look at my father-in-law for example, he's in exceptionally good health. He's very strong. He gardens. Uh, they cook. They grow their own food. They eat a lot of these because my husband's actually half Sri Lankan. They use a lot of spices. Uh, red wine, all these things. They're obviously, their microbes are good because they're out in the garden all the time. They're physically active, they're strong. But then on the other hand, he'll also have done, you know, he, he's a doctor and, and had for many years sort of fallen into what was perceived as medically correct here for a long time, which was let's not eat butter, let's eat margarine uh, and have cereal for breakfast and things. But it's really interesting, isn't it? Because it's almost like, it seems like if you can wait enough of this in your favor, then maybe, you know, the 20% that you're not doing right is going to, it's not going to be so bad, if you like. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, let me give you a, a great example that, that made the news, uh, I think, a couple of months ago. There was a study out of uh, Norway looking at uh, people with uh, angina, with uh, coronary artery disease, with chest pain, stable angina. And they looked at the effect of, uh, dairy consumption, butter consumption, and cheese consumption, and look at the fate of their angina, how much angina they got. And the, the splash that made it across the news was that dairy and butter is really bad for angina, that the more dairy you ate, the worse your angina got, the more butter you ate, the worse your angina got. And then there was a little aside. And it said, uh, cheese didn't seem to have that effect. Well, it not only didn't have that effect, if you look at the graph, the more cheese you ate, the less angina you got. And you go, well, what the heck? Why would that possibly be? A couple of reasons. And I, I talk about it in the book. Three of the longest living blue zones are actually goat and sheep cheese eaters. And that doesn't come out in the books. And it's the goat and sheep cheese that are fermented cheeses and they have MCT oil in them. 30% of all the fat in goat and sheep milk is MCT oil. So these people are uncoupling their mitochondria. And there's some really good research that was just presented at the big microbiome meeting that I presented at Paris last month that certain fermented cheeses, raw cheeses, actually have compounds that actively uncouple your mitochondria. 
Only in raw cheeses. If you pasteurize the milk, it doesn't happen. Doesn't. Yeah. So, and can it be with cow's milk raw cheeses as well? Because like the French I, eat a lot of cheese, right? Yes, but their their cow is what's called a casein A2 cow. Unfortunately, the Brits have a casein A1 cow, the Holstein cow. So a Guernsey cow is absolutely safe. A Swiss brown cow is absolutely safe. Most French and Italian cows are A2 cows. Uh, most Portuguese cows are A2 cows. Spain cows are A1. And it's a long story. We won't get into that. But uh, cheese consumption is actually profoundly beneficial to your health. Need to buy French cheese. We can get Jersey milk here. And actually, you can go and buy it. But I don't think you can do that with, with the cheese. Um, the other thing you talk about is the statuins. These these are obviously important and optimizing right. for NED. I know listeners will be very interested in that. Um, what do you have to say about about eating statuin enhancing compounds and, and optimizing well, NED pathways? And you know, I talk a lot about this in in the book, and uh, I think it's there's two things. I think uh, Dave Sinclair concentrates on the sirtuins as you know enhancing NADH production, uh, but we forget that these compounds are also mitochondrial couplers. So I think the question is, well, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Uh, are they? Which pathway is perhaps the most important? And I don't know the answer to that. But all I can tell you is uh, I want to use whatever compounds I can do use to uncouple my mitochondria. And if in the process they also increase our MICER2 and CERT1 and CERT2 production, so much the better. It's a win-win as far as I'm win -win concerned. Win-win all around. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, I want to touch at the end on just on heat and, and cold very briefly. Um, as we kind of near the end, but with the um, sirtuins, do you are you an advocate of taking uh, additional supplements with things like resveratrol? You know, I'm curious as to your thoughts on that and the bioavailability. Yeah, the we're the bioavailability is horrible uh, of all these compounds, and I talk about it in the book. We're now beginning, I think, to realize that these compounds. Uh, are these are polyphenols polyphenols were designed by plants to protect their mitochondria from sun damage uh, sunlight is damaging to plants and plants have to have sunlight obviously to produce energy so they protect their mitochondria which are called chloroplasts with polyphenols and it just so happens polyphenols work by uncoupling their mitochondria Polyphenols that we eat, you're right, are very poorly absorbed. But we're beginning to realize now that polyphenols are maybe the most important prebiotic for our gut bacteria. And we've been, we've kind of missed the boat that these things are really important for our gut bacteria. The gut bacteria then in turn make these compounds much more bioavailable. Um, just as a fun aside, some of the richest sources of melatonin uh, are plants. And you go, well, wait a minute, why would plants make melatonin? They don't need to go to sleep. Uh, but melatonin is only one of two antioxidants in mitochondria. Uh, vitamin C is not a mitochondrial antioxidant. Vitamin E isn't. Glutathione is the other antioxidant. And it just so happens that plants use melatonin to, as an antioxidant for their mitochondria. So it all kind of comes around. And the book shows you where to find melatonin. Turns out pistachios have the highest melatonin content. And since we've been talking about the Mediterranean diet, huge amounts of the compounds in the Mediterranean diet, including mushrooms, red wine, chocolate, uh, and coffee, and olive oil have very large components of melatonin in those compounds. In and their olive oil, interesting. Yeah, olive oil. There's a paper that suggests 
that the main health benefit of olive oil is its melatonin content, not its hydroxytylor salt content. Interesting. And where do you come out on red wine? How much is how much is <laughs> beneficial? And well, how much is too much? You know, you, you uh, to get uh, the resveratrol that you would need, uh, you would have to drink about 150 bottles of red wine a day. However, in my previous book, The Longevity Paradox, I talk about Luigi Carneros who was an Italian who lived to 102 in the 15th century. And Luigi Carneros wrote a book on how to live to be 100. And he wrote chapters uh, every five years of his life. And when he was in his 50s, his physician told him that he was basically a dead man walking and he was going to have to change his diet. And what he described is actually a fairly calorie-restricted diet. But he says that you must have a liter per day of high-quality red wine. And a liter. Oh, my goodness. I can't imagine the hangover. So uh, and you shouldn't have a hangover from a liter of red wine if it's actually high-quality. Right. No, no, I don't drink a liter of red wine. But I'm impressed that a guy made it to a, 102 in the 15th century. Uh, he had a liter every single day. You know, every single, spread throughout the day. And if, you, and if you look, I think one of the things that I think the, the English and Americans and Canadians get wrong is uh, wine in Italy and France is a beverage that is enjoyed with a meal. And that beverage might be enjoyed with breakfast or certainly with lunch and certainly with dinner. And the idea of a cocktail party um, where we drink our beverages before the meal um, is, is not part of, of that traditional culture. And I think we could probably learn from that, that we probably should reserve our alcohol intake for for the meals itself rather than the preparation. Although I must say I have fond memories of have, sipping on some sherry before dinner in England, uh, wonderful old custom. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think people, there's plenty of, uh, of, of, of elderly ladies who say that they have a glass of sherry a day and that's their secret to longevity. I think yeah, my, well. my my uh, my grandmother lived uh, two two weeks shy of her hundredth birthday, and she lived in a three story house, and her bedroom was on the third floor, and she was you know healthy until the day she died, and she said that every night she had a, a glass of uh, Morgan David sherry wine, and attributed her great health to that. So she was yeah. certainly uncoupling her mitochondria. I mean, it's interesting what you say about the wine. If I drink good French wine, I think most of French wine is, you know, dry farmed. And then you compare it to if I have it, it doesn't matter, like a really expensive Californian red, not just a headache, it, it triggers my asthma. It, it's Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the French and the Italians uh, and the Austrians are so far ahead of us. So much of their is the organic. Wine's beautiful as well. Yeah. They're organic. They're biodynamic. There's no glyphosate. Almost all California wines have glyphosate in them. I mean, it's just like, it's unbelievable. God. Yeah. Before you go then, um, let's talk just briefly about sauna and cold, uh, because obviously this helps as well. So, you know, lots of people talking about the benefits of cold exposure and how that enhances brown fat, which we know contains more mitochondria. It's interesting uh, about sauna as well. Um, that this instigates this uncoupling. What should we be doing? What's an optimal protocol uh, to incorporate in our lives in terms of, I guess, the three that I tend to hit, which is the cold, the red light therapy, and the sauna. Uh, you talk about hot sauna as well, and I've got an infrared, so <laughs> I was kind of, am I getting hot enough? Yeah, well, it, it turns out that uh, saunas activate what's called heat shock protein. And back when I was a heart surgeon, I was a big researcher in heat shock proteins. And it turns out that heat shock proteins uh, protect the heart from being damaged during heart surgery. And lo and behold, heat shock proteins uncouple mitochondria. It's the same way with cold exposure. Cold actually uncouples mitochondria in brown fat. And brown fat is brown, 
because it's so dense with mitochondria. And so the more heat exposure, the more you uncouple mitochondria, the more cold exposure, the more you uncouple mitochondria. And it's actually the exact same process, uh, just in reverse. Uh, so you really don't need that much cold exposure, yet you don't need to sit in a bucket of ice water for a half an hour. Just having you know a half a minute of cold exposure when you finish a shower is plenty to okay. activate. It's, it's really it all you need. To activate? Yeah, yeah. Mm. The other thing, remember, there's so many ways to skin a cat to uncouple mitochondria that let's suppose you don't enjoy the cold. Well, don't worry about it. You know, use a sauna instead or use red light therapy, or you don't want to do any of that, that's fine. Just eat thermogenic spices, eat the rainbow. So when, when people are told to eat the rainbow, what you're actually doing is eating polyphenols. And every time you eat those polyphenols, you improve your gut microbiome, number one, but you will get these compounds that uncouple your mitochondria. Amazing. And with the with the sauna, do you need to do like a certain number of sessions? I know, for example, like a lot of the studies have been done in the hot saunas, right? The Finnish studies. And yeah, the Finnish studies. A decent number. I think it's like four times a week for a decent chunk of time. Obviously, with an infrared, it's not you've got all the benefits of the infrared. It's not going as hot, though. Is it just Correct. a case of you spend a bit longer? Because it definitely takes me longer to get a sweat on in an infrared sauna. Yeah, and it may not be that really what you're looking for with, with infrared uh, or with red light therapy, you may not even need to activate the sweating. There is some interesting work on red light uh, uncoupling mitochondria, particularly red light aimed at the gut. And we're, we're trying to work with a company to actually make a... Uh, a red light therapy device that you just wrap on your belly for a little while and uh, give that therapy to your to your bacteria. Why not? Why not? I do it on my face. I have a little face mask with red yeah, light therapy yeah. in addition to my. I figured that you know standing in front of it for any length of time just for the face wasn't going to work with three kids, so I needed something I could strap on and walk around with. <laughs> so yeah, amazing. Oh, you've shared so much and. The book is fantastic. I highly recommend people go and buy it. Unlocking the Keto Code. It's brilliant. So much detail. And just the explanations in it, I think, like the Mito Club and the way you explain things, it just makes it, there's so much science in it and it's technical, but it's so easy to read. So I'd highly recommend anyone listening to this, go and buy Unlocking the Keto Code and also all your other books, The Longevity Paradox, The Plant Paradox. Uh, it's been amazing to have you on. Thank you so much for coming and sharing all your expertise and wealth of knowledge. Well, thank you for having me on your podcast and uh, hope your uh, listeners and viewers will enjoy it. Thank you. I'm sure they will. Where can they also connect with you? Are you still see patients? Yeah, I still I see patients six days a week. I have offices in Palm Springs, California and Santa Barbara, California. We see patients from all, all around the world. Uh, we'll Skype, we'll FaceTime, we'll figure out a way to do it. We do a lot of sophisticated blood work that can actually be done in most countries, um, which is exciting. Uh, I have actually a number of patients from England, uh, some from France, uh, Spain, uh, literally all over. Uh, so don't let uh, distance stop us from talking. So uh, my websites are drgundry.com. My supplement and food company is gundrymd.com. There's the Dr. Gendry podcast, and we've just uh, introduced a new telemedicine program, uh, which is going to go international called GundryHealth.com, where uh, we'll do telemedicine with Gendry-trained doctors. Awesome. That's so exciting. Thank you so much. We will link to all of that in the show notes. And thanks again for coming on the show. All right. Thanks a lot. 
I want to thank you for listening and supporting the show. We have some incredible guests lined up over the next few months. If you haven't already, please hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And I'd be super grateful if you can leave us a review over on iTunes or whichever platform you're listening on. It helps us to get the show out to a wider audience and the bigger the show gets, the bigger the guests. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you next week for another episode of High Performance Health. Thank you for listening to today's show and for your interest in health optimization for high performance. If you're new to my podcast, you may be interested to know that you can get a free health score and report complete with personalized recommendations on how to optimize your sleep, nutrition, fitness, and resilience in the top link in the show notes below. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Links to everything we talked about are also in the show notes. And if you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe for more.